Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. 
Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. He said, I know your personality, Steve. He said, you're pretty kind of quiet about things. And he said, Bud Moore's going to eat you alive. Dale said, I don't know why you're doing that. And they said, well, we just want to be part of a championship team. You guys just aren't big enough. Oldsmobile and Hutch got so far behind on supplying us cars that they said, just take the show car. I don't know. Everybody was kind of frustrated with me. I said, we're going to be all right. So we sat on a pole, a new track record, led the most laps and won the race. In the show car. In the show car. <laughs> the day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. And Steve, yeah. we have had to give in to the lockdown order that is in effect in Charlotte and will be in my area starting tonight. So we are recording this remotely using that's, Zencaster. We've that's right. tested that out and hopefully worked out the kinks. <laughs> well, we'll find out soon enough, won't we, Rick? Hopefully there won't be too many roadblocks. And speaking of roadblocks, I was doing my run and everything. And for the first time, I've passed this spot, I don't know how many times, but I got chased down by a dog, and it was a big dog with <laughs> ill intent with flashing teeth. Now, and that was a nervous moment, I bet. I think that dog thought that he had treated himself as a Sasquatch. <laughs> what, what, what happened? Uh, the dog obviously didn't attack, right? He did not attack. He was kind of circling and everything, and I was standing there, and eventually its owner tracked it down. I think what had happened is he had just gotten out of its out of its fence or out of the van that the right. owner was in or whatever and just got away from the owner because, like I said, I had passed that place. Steve, I know I've passed it hundreds of times on my walks yeah. without any kind of hey, issue. That's the first time that something like that had happened while you're on this route, correct? It was the first time I'd ever gotten that close to a dog. Yes, sir. Oof. And I've been doing this almost 10 years, so that was kind of scary. You were just about a solo act on this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That would not have been greatly appreciated by our listeners, I don't believe. (laughs) That all said, though, glad everything turned out for you. You and me both, brother. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Steve, this week we have the first of what's going to be a three-part interview with Steve Mill. You and I sat down with him at the North Carolina Auto Racing Hall of Fame in Mooresville. We had ourselves just a wonderful conversation. Oh, yeah. Very informative, very entertaining. Steve tells some great stories. This week, he talks about his introduction into the sport with Petty Enterprises. He started at Petty Enterprises the day after what was evidently a pretty yeah. controversial race in Dover, and we'll talk oh. about that one in our second <laughs> segment. <laughs> And then he moved over with Dell Emmon to Hagen Racing and won the 1984 Winston Cup Championship. <laughs> and there was a little bit of bulletin board fodder kind of priding them <laughs> along. They'd had a discussion with some officials from Budweiser going into the 1984 season yeah. that kind of, I think, kind of prodded them along. Well, you know what Budweiser wanted, of course, and you can't always deliver when your sponsor says, hey, we want a championship team. But in this case, ah, guess what? (laughs) (laughs) And don't you know that was a very, very, very satisfying championship for them for more than one reason. Absolutely. And then, Steve, I had to laugh when he was talking about his impromptu job interview 
with Junior Johnson at Watkins Glen. I got the biggest kick out of that because that was Junior Johnson. It's absolutely a comic routine. You won't find <laughs> that any better by any comedian. <laughs> <laughs> and Steve, in our second segment, we are going to go back to the March 6th, 1986 issue of Grand National Scene. And that issue carried coverage of the Goodrich 500, won by Terry Labonte with Steve Mill in the pits as the crew chief. The car that Terry drove and that Steve prepared started out life as a show car. Incredible. Imagine that. <laughs> and what's more, not only did the car start out life as a show car, Bob Labonte <laughs> was not happy about the fact <laughs> that his son was going to be driving a show car. So not only did Steve have to worry about preparing this car, he had to worry about kind of fending off Bob Labonte. <laughs> and let me tell you something, those show cars, they are indeed very, very close to actual race cars. But to get a show car, to run a particular race, you have to take that car in and reconfigure it for the track oh, yeah. you are racing at. And that is not an easy task. Well, I think what happened was Steve went back to the shop and he went through that thing with a fine tooth comb. And yeah, definitely Terry Labonte took that thing to victory lane and dominated that race. Absolutely. Great race for Terry and the guys. Now, not only was the Rockingham race covered in this issue, the big news in this issue was the reaction to the incident between Dell Earnhardt and Darrell Waltrip at the end of the Richmond race the week before. No and, surprise there. <laughs> <laughs> plus, there was news in this issue of Robert Yates leaving Die Guard, and yes, lawyers were involved. <laughs> And there was also a story about David Pearson's future in racing and whether or not he would actually ever drive again. Turns out uh, only maybe one or two more times. So David was at the end of his career, but he was helping Larry Pearson at the time. And right. Larry went on to win the championship, the Bush Series championship in 86 and 87. Mm -hmm. which you can read about in Second to None, the history of the NASCAR Bush Series. <laughs> if, you, if you can find a copy. <laughs> Just kidding, of course. Yeah, I hear you. How many How many prints did Brave and Life go into? Two or three? Six. Six. <laughs> Six. And it's, I'm going to say this, and I'm not probably going to regret it, because... It, the book is now in the hands of Hollywood, and it has been for some time, which the longer it goes, of course, the lesser the chances are we'll ever see the movie, but that's where it is right now. Hey, when you make this movie about Brave and Life, can I play Junior? <laughs> I, well, I've got Hollywood experience. Come on, well, now. Boy, for what? Mission Control? Oh, yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, you were yeah. at that. Yeah. You will be you will be strongly considered. I was directed by an Academy Award winning director. I've got experience now. <laughs> I've got some okay. street cred. <laughs> we'll put your name in the hat. <laughs> Steve, this week also we have new Patreon support from Michael Kent, which we truly do appreciate. Folks, please help us out on Patreon if you can. Support us on PayPal, support QWare, support Brian Kelb. 
And you can support us at Patreon at patreon.com slash the same vault podcast and paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. And once we have them in hand and once we kind of get past all this virus stuff and everything, we actually have some more Steve Wade tracks cards on the way. Thanks go. to our friend there Hallie Emery. Steve, he wound up with 12 more Steve Wade rookie cards. How about that? <laughs> 12 more chances, folks. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> So, again, you can support us on Patreon and and possibly get your hands on one of these Steve Wade cards, patreon.com slash the same vault podcast or paypal.me slash the same vault podcast. Steve, you got your start working for TexPal and building cars for guys like Benny Parsons back in 1974, and then you went to work at Petty Enterprises late the following year in 1975. How did that come about? Well, TexPal and Richie and Les Bars and Jimmy Kowalczyk started a company called Carcraft in Asheboro, North Carolina, and they built Benny's cars. A year or so into it, Richie and Les decided to go do something else. So Tex said, well, myself and Jimmy Kowalczyk will we'll stay here. So I moved down from upstate New York in July of 74. And uh, I had been to the Petties and knew a couple guys there, knew Richie. And I went in there and they, they just decided I didn't have enough experience. I said, that, that's fine. And Richie said, just go see Tex. So I went down to see Tex and he was just wonderful. You know, I'm a kid super wet behind the ears, you know, just about to die to do something. And uh, he taught me a lot. We learned, we worked very hard. Uh, we had a great time. On weekends, if it was nearby, we would go to the race and help Benny's guys. So it was a really good opportunity for me. And then uh, the summer of 75, I was a little restless to do something different. Um, Tex racing wasn't as big then as it ultimately was. And uh, I was just kind of wanted to work on a big team and Bud Moore was uh, was looking for somebody David if told me that and Tex had worked for Bud Moore and he said I know your personality Steve he said you're pretty kind of quiet about things and he said Bud Moore's gonna eat you alive don't you <laughs> <laughs> and he was right uh, but I never I went, can't imagine I, I, ne- yeah, I, I never went down there and uh, and the Petties were looking for somebody and Tex heard about it. and Tex is actually the guy that guy that told me and he called chief and Chief said, okay, send him up here and we'll talk to him. And the first thing Chief said is, don't let your buddy text down. So it, it worked out very well for me. I went right in the door and went to work. Didn't make a whole lot of money, but learned an awful lot from the petties and worked my, my way up there. I was there for seven years altogether. What did you do for him initially? When I first started, I was a fabricator. Yeah. Uh, putting bodies on cars and uh, built a lot of kit cars with Richie Bars. And I was fortunate that Richie Bars took me under his wing. He, he, he looked out for me, taught me a lot of things, was hard on me, but it was easy for me because I had a pretty okay work ethic, but I just didn't have enough experience to really be doing what I was doing. But I, I learned almost every day there, and it, it worked out very well. Good. You had been in the sport about a year, and you joined Petty Enterprises, and Richard wins the championship that year. How big a deal was that for you? Uh... At that point in time, Richard was supposed to win championships, you know, <laughs> yeah, so it yeah, wasn't, yeah. it wasn't, uh, you went to the page, you expected to win a couple, a Daytona 500 or two and a couple championships. And, and at that time, that's how it all worked out. And I, I got there after Dover in um, September 
And when I went to work that Monday morning, they were all mad at ben, uh, not Benny, but uh, Travis Carter, because Travis Carter hollered something at them as they were leaving the racetrack, because that's the race. I don't know if you remember, but Benny was leading, and Richard got down a bunch of laps, and Buddy Arrington kept bringing out cautions, <laughs> and Richard right. made up like seven laps or <laughs> something like right. that. So wow. that was what the talk was all that day. So there, Buddy denies it. Yeah, 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 Buddy didn't know anything about it. And... Uh, it was just a it was just a whole new opportunity for me, but you were in the big time, so you really expected to to do things like winning championships. And as I said, it was late September. I had very little to do with it. Well, the finish of the nineteen seventy six Daytona five hundred, one of the greatest finishes in history. What do you remember about? It? And were you one of the guys that tried to push him across the finish line? No, because as soon as as soon as everybody started to bolt over the wall. The NASCAR officials went crazy, and Richie Bars ignored them. Obviously, that's Richie Bars. And two or three others went yeah. on, went on, and did it. And Chief stood there the whole time, and all he wanted somebody to do was, he said, "Pull the wires off, pull the wires off, pull the wires off." And we're like, I "Wonder what Chief was talking about?" Well, he wanted us to pull the wires off of Pearson's car, the plug wire, <laughs> so, he, so he couldn't crank it and drive yeah. across the start yeah. finish line first. But no, there were there wasn't that many that went across, and those that did got. A little bit of screamed at by NASCAR, but it was all such a great event. They, yeah. they, I think they really enjoyed it. Steve, you had some pretty big names on that team. Obviously, you had Richard, you had Maurice, Chief, uh, you had Dell Inman. I believe Barry Dodson Barry was, there, yeah. was there at the time. What was it like to be learning from people of such a huge, huge stature? The biggest thing I learned quickly was that it was compartmentalized. You had people that took the oil tank out every week and cleaned it and put it back in. You had, uh, you had Uncle Bottle Milliken, who was uh, Petty's uncle, and he, he dismounted all the wheels and tires and cleaned everything up and pulled the inner liners out. And, you know, the, a bunch of us built things, control arms, and looked at the K-members, the front suspension pieces that came out of the car, did a lot of magnet flux, and then across the street in the new buildings where they put everything together. So everybody kind of had their job, and what was good about my position was I was under Richie Bars. And he did a little bit of everything. So I got to learn everything. Okay. And, yeah. and that's, that was, other than that, I don't think it had been that enjoyable because my idea was to learn how to do everything as quickly as I could and, and hopefully become good at it. You were so, at some point in 78, is that correct? Yeah, I believe yeah. so. I had yes. to go to work for Jerry Cook. Yes. What was your reasoning behind that? Um, I had felt like. For his modified, yeah. yeah. To, to, to Rick's yeah. point, I'd I'd basically been in the in big time auto racing a year, and, and I was concerned that maybe I hadn't learned enough to be where I was at Petty Enterprises. In other words, I said, "Man, I need to step off here and see if I can do something by myself." So Jerry Cook was looking for somebody for the year to run with him. He was at Bowman Gray, and he said, "Why don't you just come with me?" So I Bowman Gray, yeah, I had, yes, sir. I had I had. Uh, <laughs> Everything I owned was in three grocery bags, and it was all closed. I didn't even have luggage. And uh, I jumped in the truck and went with him, and I went from this incredibly big shop with 40 people working in it called Petty Enterprises to Jerry Cook, where it was just myself and Jerry. And uh, nuts and bolts weren't in cabinets. They were in chasing Sanborn cans and things like that. So if you're going to get something done, you had to do it. So I felt like it was a May till November period where we ran about 87, 90 races, and if something was going to happen, you or Jerry was going to, were going to do it. Yeah. And, and it, it, it really made me feel like I was capable of yeah. doing something. And then uh, some way Kyle got in touch with me and said, I'm going to start racing. He said, uh, 
Dad wants to know if you'll come take care of my car. Right. But anyway, I, I, I just needed to prove to myself that I was worthy almost. Yeah. You know. So you do go back to Level Cross, and yes. you're going to be Kyle's crew chief. Yes, sir. Early in his career. What do you remember about those formative years? Obviously, you won at Daytona. Yeah. But then... <laughs> the biggest thing I remember is uh, back then you had different height spoilers that you, bol- that, that you bolted on the back of the deck. It wasn't a matter of bending things around all that. So we just had different heights. There was no minimum. And uh, we sent Kyle, because he was comfortable as could be, and he's so cool. You know, he, didn't, he wasn't worried about anything, with an inch spoiler. So me and Richard are... Uh, an inch. An Spo- inch. <laughs> Richard and I are standing on top of the trailer just timing them and watching them. There wasn't much electronics then. And he said, what spoiler you got on there? And I said, the inch. And he said, and he got down that ladder. And, you know, he, Richard's got a funny way when he walks really fast, you, you know. And I said, what are we doing? He said, get him in, get him in. You know, he thought he was going to hurt himself. But ultimately, yeah. it all worked out okay, wow. and, and we won the race. But uh, after that, Richard wanted Kyle to do a lot of things. So we bought a dirt car from Haas Ellington uh-huh. and built that. Rebuilt that, and uh, he we went to an ARCA race in Nashville to drive somebody else's car, and we got there, and the car wasn't. A bunch of things looked scary on it, so we just came home, and then we took the Magnum to Talladega, and I think we ran eighth in it, Michigan, things like that. Crashed trying to qualify Fourth of July, so it was a bit of a rough year. Yeah. And I, I'm not really sure. I, I know Lee was involved more than people know. And uh, I'm not really sure that there was enough money to race Kyle or there was enough interest family-wide to race Kyle. So Richard came to me that fall, and he said, you're coming over on my car. And I said, okay, that's cool. So I, I went to work under Dale for Richard. Yeah. And when Dale left for Ostalin yes. after the Daytona 500 of 1981, you were like a co-crew chief with Wade Thornburg? Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, well had you gotten any indication that they was going to leave, and what was the team's mood afterward? The, the, the first indication I had was when when uh, Dale kind of choked up in Victory Lane at Daytona and wow. told uh-huh. his wife Mary, "I'll be home tonight." And I thought, "Wonder what's wrong there? Maybe Mary's sick or something." I mean, yeah. that's how. I mean, we just had our heads down. You had no idea. No, I, no, really. No. Wow. I saw. We saw one long conversation. There were two buildings that were parallel to each other, separated by about. 100 feet of asphalt at the patties. And, and we were in the building where we built cars, Richie Bars and I, and across the street were Dale and Richard in a really long, drawn-out conversation in January that year. I thought, man, I wonder what's going on wow. there. But we, there was, man, that wasn't a clue, which Dale's, Dale's really cool about stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. He, he wouldn't let that on, but it was, uh, it was rough. People didn't know who was going to be the boss and how it was going to work out and all that. You know, Wade wasn't excited about being a co-crew chief, and eventually he's like, man, just just take care of that mess. You know, I, I want to do what I've always done, and it was, it was tough. We won two races. We won uh, yeah. North Wilkesboro and Michigan. We were happy about that, but by 82, the load of, I think, running two cup cars with basically one cup car's budget had gotten a little tough. Uh, and uh, I, I decided to step away and go do something else. Now, at some point, you did move on, and you went to build cars during the week. Who was that? For? Was that back with Tex? No, with Jay Hedgecock. Okay. All right. Remember when Richard yeah. rolled his car down yes. the front street? Yeah. Okay, Jay Hedgecock built that car. Now, I wasn't there then. Right, yeah. But, but, yeah, he's a 
pretty famous, very famous late model stock car builder in High Point, North Carolina. And you were also Ron Bouchard's crew chief. Was, <laughs> yeah. How did, who was he running for at the time? Was that Ray Hill Farms. Really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And Jack Beebe, wasn't it? Yeah, Jack Beebe. And somehow, Jack and, uh, oh, man. I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name right now. The guy that was in charge. Uh, Bob Johnson? Bob Johnson yeah. had gotten crossways. And, oh, I can't uh, imagine Bob Johnson yeah. crossways <laughs> with, <laughs> yeah. with anybody. <laughs> so they said, can, can you... Will you change front tires for us? Yeah. So we went to Daytona, made some changes, and talked about things. And they said, man, you need to be the crew chief. I said, well, I'm not moving to Connecticut, but we'll do whatever we need to do. So we ran third there, went to Nashville the next week and ran second. Went to Pocono the next week and ran third. Well, Jack's all excited, he, you know, and he doesn't have somebody screaming at him all the time. And Ronnie doesn't have somebody <laughs> screaming at him either. But yeah. So they said, just come to Connecticut. I said, no, i got a wife and two little kids, and they're... I'm going to travel my whole life racing, and I want my wife to at least have her parents and, you know, all the people she grew up with around her for support because I'm not going to be there that much. So, so uh, they eventually hired uh, David Ift, and then David didn't go to Connecticut because they moved down and bought the Die Guard shop and, and raced out of right. there. Well, now, Dale Lemon wanted you to come back and work at Haken Racing with him and driver Terry Labonte. Yes. Okay. What was it like working with him again? And well, this time you had more experience. Well, I was still just a broke old racer, and I needed a ride to Martinsville or maybe Charlotte. And I knew Dale commuted, so I called him and said, hey, man, can I ride with you? Sure. So we went up there and did our thing during the day. We got together to come home, and we were riding down the road. He said, hey, I'm going to work at Hagen's. But the thing had already blown up with Stacy, and Earnhardt was already yeah, gone. And right. Dale was real frustrated with how things were going. And uh, I, said, I said, well, what do we need to do? He said, well, I want you to come with me to Hagen's. I said, that's cool. You know, that'd be great. It's right there in Thomas. <laughs> Simple as that. And they yeah. had been running good. Jake was there yeah. and Joey Knuckles. And they had run, gosh, they were like second or third in the points in 82. You know, and they, they had Budweiser coming on board. And, uh, yeah, it looked like a really good opportunity. So we went over there and, and, uh, and did that. Um, did a lot of things around the shop. Built some nice cars with Eddie Dickerson. Uh, real proud of what was going on. Had a 200-mile-an-hour Monte Carlo, which there was only two at that time, ours and Mr. Rainier's. And uh, in 84, we were super prepared. In fact, Dale Lemon said, I, in all my years, which was a lot of years even by 1984, he said, I don't believe we've ever, I've ever been on a team that was this prepared. Hmm. And with Terry, I mean, I think we had like 25 top 10s or something. It was incredible numbers. You know, and Terry just comes in and does his job and doesn't tear things up. And we got lucky and won the championship, you know. So that was, that was really cool. It was another championship for Dale without, without Richard, which right. he doesn't crow about, but I think it was good for him internally, yes. yeah. you yeah. know, to say, man, I got one. I didn't have to have my cousin. And it was good for us as, as it relates to uh, Chevrolet. And, and what was really good was at the end of 1983, the Budweiser guys were crowing at us because they were leaving going to juniors, and we were at the banquet. And, and uh, somebody said something, and Dale said, I don't know why you're doing that. And they said, well, we just want to be part of a championship team. You guys just aren't big enough to win the championship. <laughs> oh, so the God. next year at the wow. banquet, we're all standing yeah. there. And Dale Inman, who's a tough guy, went and found the Budweiser guy that said that. And he said, well, how do you think it's working out now? Which Daryl uh, had won a lot of races that year. And he yeah. was crowing about, you know, needs to be more bonus points for winning races and so on and so forth but you know we had the deal presented to us as it was and you know we did the best job and scored the most points and won the championship we were tickled to death i think it's hilarious that you mentioned that because we talked to terry labani yeah and he told the budweiser story oh yeah we talked to del inman he told the budweiser story 
And now, yeah, yeah, that was evidently a thing That's well, with you guys. <laughs> yeah, you don't forget. Plus, yeah. Dale Inman is not loud. You know I me. Mean? He's fun, and he'll grab you, and you feel like he's going to break your arm or squeeze your head off your neck or whatever. But, <laughs> but he he is not outspoken. No, you'd expect that from Bob Labonte, who always sets you straight. Right. But but yeah, for people. Kind of quiet people like myself and Terry to see Dale Inman actually kind of not step out of line but make right. a statement. Yeah, that, that that really burned a hole in us. Nineteen eighty five on Racing Reference, you were listed as the crew chief yes. all the way through the season. No, is that correct? No, okay. da- uh, Richard was leaving Curb. Okay, and uh, Dale said, "Man, why don't you come back to Petty Enterprises with me?" And I said, I don't know, let's go right over and see what we got. And, and we went over there one day at lunchtime from Hagen's. And, uh, man, it looked exactly like it did when I left in 1982. He, you know, I said, man, it's, it's the same old deal with the same old people, and I don't feel like I'm moving ahead, he, right. you know. Yeah. And I, I didn't aspire to be a crew chief at all, but it just didn't feel like the right thing for me. And a, a bunch of guys left Hagen and went over there with Dale. But I didn't start being the crew chief until... Again, Dover in the fall or something about Dover in, the, in September that, that's <laughs> yeah. always been around. But no, uh, Dale was the crew chief until then. Now, the Hagen team experienced some pretty good financial problems. Yes. And uh, so how big of an impact was that on uh, what you're trying to accomplish? Well, just like just like me and my my little compartmentalized head not realizing that Dale Inman might leave Petty Enterprises... I had no idea that Billy was in financial trouble. So I said, I'll, I'll just stay here and we'll go on about our business. And uh, one day, uh, Wayne King, who was the team manager, general manager, he, uh, he came in and they loaded up all our Chevrolet race cars at the end of the year. Rick Hendrick had bought them. And they were, man, 2,900, 2,850-pound race cars, really nice little race cars we'd spent a lot of time on. And you'd, at that point in, in racing, you might have had four. You yeah. know, it wasn't like everybody had to have a dozen or 20 like now. But still, I hated to see him going. I thought, what's going on? Well, then you kind of heard through the grapevine from people that were in the know. Dewey Live and Good knew what was going on because he had been restricted somewhat on what engine parts he could buy. And I thought, man, what's going on? So anyway, Billy had committed to Oldsmobile, and Oldsmobile was coming in with a bang. You know, Kale had a car, and the Jacksons had cars, yeah. and, the, you, you know, Harry Gann had cars. So what you did then was you went to Hutchinson Pagan and picked up a chassis and all the sheet metal. Hutch was the Oldsmobile sheet metal guy. And every fitting, every line, fuel cell, filler neck, seat, steering wheels, steering boxes, and you loaded it up and you went home and built it. And then Oldsmobile car said, go get another one, go get another one, go get another one. So it looked like Oldsmobile financed Billy back out of trouble. Uh, and he wasn't in any trouble. Just oil had gone bad. You know, right. it, 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 the the bottom had dropped out. Yeah. OPEC was pumping too much out, and you know Billy lost a lot. And he he had such a big company by that time. He was over in the Southeast Asia doing stuff, and uh, he couldn't get it turned around quick enough to to stop the bleeding. And he lost a lot. But we got so Oldsmobile and Hutch got so far behind on supplying us cars that. Uh, I was waiting on a car, waiting on a car, waiting on a car. I said, man, we need a car for Rockingham. So they said, just take the show car. And God, that made Bob Labonte so mad. He thought I wasn't doing the right thing for, for Terry. And I said, no, we are. We're, Bob, we're not going to run a show car. We're going to come home and take it all apart and do our thing to it, put another body on it, lighten everything up. It's going to be a nice little rest. I, 
Boy, the whole whole crowd was mad. And one thing about it is that if Bob's mad, the clan is mad. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and uh, so everybody's kind of looking at me crazy. Yeah. Well, we anyway. <laughs> Before Rockham went to Daytona and ran second to Jeff Bodine. So, like, man, maybe we're okay, you yeah. know? So, we went to Richmond and ran eighth. Next is Rockham. Well, we break out the show car. So, man, you know, everybody's the engine tuner, TA Tombs, for whatever reason, he got mad and quit at the racetrack. I'm not sure to this day how he even got home. He lives in Randleman. But, uh, I don't know. Everybody was kind of frustrated with me. I said, we're going to be all right. So we sat on a pole, new track record, led the most laps and won the race. In the show car. In the show car. <laughs> How about <that? laughs> But we had put a lot of time and effort in the show car. And Terry Labonte did a fantastic job yeah. of holding off Harry Gant and Richard Petty. So anyway, as the year went on, it became obvious that we didn't have enough engine, enough money for the good engine parts we needed. And we broke a lot of engines, and Terry got frustrated and ultimately took the job at... Uh, Junior. Junior. Yeah. 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 And Junior, I'll never forget this. We're standing in what they called at the time a urinal at Watkins Glen, which is just urinated on the wall and it went down in a drain. And, uh, at least it wasn't a big time auto racing. Yeah. Dirt floor. Yeah. yeah. Well, here comes Junior. You coming up there with that boy? I said, no, Junior, at that time, 421 was two lanes, and it was like a hour and 45 minutes or something. I said, no, I've kind of committed to stay with Billy, and that's what we do. All right, then. He zipped his bib overalls up, and away he went. So that was my interview with Junior. So Terry went on and had great success, and and we worked real hard to get get Sterling Marlin going, and it was just – had nothing to do with Sterling Marlin. We just didn't have enough money to race properly in 1987. Hello, Scene Vault Podcast listeners. This is Eric Quinn from QWare. Again, I just want to say thank you for listening to the Scene Vault Podcast and Rick and Steve and the wonderful interviews they've been doing with the folks from NASCAR history, the drivers, the crew chiefs, the people that made it all happen over the years. At QWare, we are very proud to be a part of this podcast and being able to bring it to you, especially at a time when you have limited entertainment options. We hope that you're enjoying it, and we hope that you get a chance to check us out at QWareCMMS.com. QWare is one of the most powerful, simple-to-use, computerized maintenance management systems on the market for your facility's maintenance team. Whatever your business, check us out. QWareCMMS.com. We're here to help your team maintain excellence. From all of us at QWare, we hope that you and your family stay safe and healthy. Now let's get back to the podcast. Thanks for listening. Steve, if you look back at some of the people who went through the garage area back in the 70s and 80s, it's kind of intriguing how many people eventually wound up at Petty Enterprises and started out at Petty Enterprises. Yeah, several of them, as a matter of fact. Yeah, you've got Steve Mill. You're also talking about Barry Dodson, Tony Glover. Tony Glover had certainly started out with his dad, Gene, racing around the East Tennessee, Virginia area. the late model sportsman, sir. Yeah. You can also read about that in Second to None. (laughs) (laughs) Also, Robin Pemberton got his foot in the door at Petty Enterprises. Ken Wilson. What was it about Petty Enterprises that became that proving ground? Well, actually, it was the experience of the team and the fact that they had the funds to race at the top level. So they were able to recruit younger talent 
and put them into that system. And when they were in that system of multi-talent and multi-funds, they grew exponentially and became very, very experienced and very, very learned themselves and naturally were prime targets for other teams in higher positions. And I mentioned this in the intro, but Steve Mill went to work for Petty Enterprises the day after the September 1975 race at Dover. (laughs) And let's just say we don't have a clue these days what controversy is all about (laughs) compared to what had happened up in Dover. Oh, it was a Lulu. (laughs) Oh, yeah. This was before Grand National Scene got started. So I went back to Greg Philden's absolutely stellar 40 years of stock car racing series to see what went on that day. And there was a plenty (laughs) that went on that day. Richard had lapped the field by lap 180. So he was on cruise control and he wound up running over a piece of debris from Elmo Langley's car on lap 348. Now that broke a tie rod in his car. And by the time he made it back on the track after repairs, Steve, he was six laps down. On this particular day though, Rick, six laps down was not enough to put Richard out of the race. (laughs) As we well know. Somehow he made up five of those laps. And he passed Dick Brooks and Benny Parsons, who were racing for the lead, with about 20 laps to go. But time was going to run out before he got back to him to hopefully get back on the lead lap. And, Steve, that's where your good friend, Buddy Arrington, enters the picture. (laughs) (laughs) Buddy was like 50 laps down after Richard made up his fifth lap. Buddy parked his car on the racetrack to try to bring out a caution. And NASCAR decided that he was out of the racing groove and the race stayed under green. Well, after he made it back to pit road, he stopped in his stall. He talked to his crew and then he proceeded right back out on the track and parked in the upper groove. Again. And Steve, he stayed there until NASCAR finally (laughs) threw the yellow flag. (laughs) Unbelievable. Car parked on the track and it forces the caution. Yes. What do you think Buddy was up to? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> the yellow came back out. Buddy went back to the pits, and NASCAR promptly parked him <laughs> for the rest of the day. <laughs> well, surprise, surprise. <laughs> the race went back to green. Richard passed Benny and Dick, came back and won the race. <laughs> and Kel Yarbrough, who finished fourth, three laps down in this race, he said in Greg Fielden's book, it was a fixed caution flag. Arrington tried twice to bring out the caution flag. I've got nothing against Petty winning, but this race should have been between Brooks and Parsons. Now the now, plot see, thickens. <laughs> the, the plot thickens. Buddy had just bought a hauler from Petty Enterprises. So he was on the hook for, I don't know, several thousand dollars. Well, Steve, as you can absolutely imagine, Dick Brooks was absolutely fit to be tied. He said in Greg's book, sometimes it takes two to win a race. There's not a damn thing anybody can do about it. I guess Arrington needed that truck paid for. Well, well, let me explain what happened. Buddy had been a longtime ally of the Petties. And that's because he drove Dodgers just like the Petties did. So naturally, he got a lot of the equipment and material from Petty Enterprises. Most of it secondhand, of course. So they had an alliance 
long before the word alliance was ever used in racing. And I think at this particular time, Buddy, with a new truck, felt someone beholding to the Petties. And I think that he went ahead and finished the deal by parking on the track and allowing Richard to make up those laps and win the race. It was sort of a payback. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I have two questions in response to that. Number one, do you think that there were team orders in play? Do you think that Maurice or Del Emman or, or somebody went down to Buddy's pit and said, hey, uh, can you help us out? And number two, do you think Buddy got a discount on the truck after that? <laughs> well, to answer number one, think Maurice, also known as Chief. Okay. If, the, if the pennies were ever going to hatch a plot, he would be the man. <laughs> <laughs> and this, what are you and, saying, Steve? <laughs> let the chips fall where they may. And on the second question, uh, yes. <laughs> discount <laughs> indeed. <laughs> But that's the way it was. I mean, I'm not. I'm not saying it was right. I'm just saying it happened. And Buddy Arrington and Petties were not the first, and they won't be the last in racing to form some kind of strategy relationship that benefits one or both guys. And evidently, from what Steve Mills said, Travis Carter, who was Benny Parsons' crew chief, had kind of been confrontational after the race and, and yelled at Richard's crew and everything. So, Steve, that had the potential to be a pretty big fight. Well, I'll tell you what. It may have had the potential, but I don't think a, a fight would ever have taken place, and I have one reason why. Back in those days, you would never find a more even-tempered or mellow man than Travis Carter. It'd be hard to see Travis getting in the fisticuffs with anybody. I think he probably had his say and figured that's what he wanted to do. And the team heard it and he went on his way. And that was that. <laughs> yeah, the end. And Steve, another thing that these interviews have done, they have given us just this awesome and different perspective on events that we otherwise know so well. Steve Mill talked about Maurice Petty's reaction to the finish of the 1976 Daytona 500 and to pull the plug wires on David Pearson's car. Now, I don't know how he planned to do that. That would have been something <laughs> to see it. the Petty yeah. Enterprises crew run out on the infield grass and start working on David's car. But he also talked about Richard's reaction to finding out that Kyle had a one one inch spoiler on his Arca car at Daytona. And he also talked about watching Richard and Dell Inman having that long conversation outside the petty shop in level cross where Dale was telling Richard that he planned to leave. Yeah. And they had to be long conversations between those two. You had to know that after Dale left, Steve becomes the co-crew chief with Wade Thordberg, who was a longtime petty crew member, team member, worked at the shop and everything. And then Wade says, you know what? It's all yours. I, I just want to do what I've always done. They win a couple of races, but then Steve kind of talked about some of the same issues that Kyle Petty did. It was just tough running two cup teams on yeah. the budget of maybe one. And Steve eventually leaves. I didn't know that he had ever worked for Race Hill Farms and Ron Bouchard. And, and he and Dell Emman wind up riding to a race together. And Dell says that he's headed up to Hagen Racing and asks if Steve wants to tag along there. And sure enough, Steve makes the move. And at the end of the 1983 season, the Budweiser people told Billy Hagen and Dell Emman that they wanted to go to a championship team. And that they didn't think that the Hagen operation was big enough to yeah. win a championship. 
Well, guess and, what? <laughs> well, guess what? <laughs> Who wins the Winston Cup Championship in 1984? Hagen Racing. That's Taylor right. Lonnie. That's right. <laughs> And that is the ultimate Toby Keith, how do you like me now moment. (laughs) (laughs) And Steve, I think it's pretty telling. Not only did Steve Mill tell his story, but so did Terry Labonte when we talked to him. And Dell Inman did too. That must have gotten their attention. Well, I'll tell you what, I think he's still telling that story all these years later. Yeah, I think that there's a huge source of pride for all three of those guys, no doubt. And finally, last but not least, Steve, how about Steve Mills' job interview, quote-unquote, with Junior Johnson? (laughs) (laughs) You want to tell him where it was? Uh, (laughs) Well, they were standing at the urinal in Watkins Glen, peeing up against a wall. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I I don't know how to say this, but... uh... I've had some great conversations in the the urinal. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, I I believe there's a thing called too much information. (laughs) I had to tell you. Listeners, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.ETSY.com. Steve, this week, Brian posted some other just amazing pieces from his inventory. He posted, I think it was a, I want to say it was a Steve Grissom Cartoon Network t-shirt. Good grief. Yeah. Oh, it's just amazing the things that Brian has and that he makes available. So he has basically anything that anybody could want. So again, follow Brian on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and also check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. That's E-T-S-Y.com. Steve, the March 6, 1986 issue of Grand National Scene covered the Rockingham race that Steve Mill won with Terry Labonte in the spring of 1986. And when you and I talked to Terry Labonte and Dell Inman, we asked both of them about Hagen Racing's financial troubles during that time. And Steve kind of chimed in on that too. Hagen Racing had went to Oldsmobile for the start of the 1986 season, and Olds and Hutchinson Pagan were having trouble keeping up with the demand. And of course, the Hutcherson Pagan operation, they were providing a lot of sheet metal to a lot of different teams. Steve needed a car to go to Rockingham and was told, we don't have anything. Just take your show car. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) The show car. And Steve, telling Terry Labonte is one thing, but telling Bob (laughs) was something else altogether. And Bob was evidently not happy. Well, uh, think of the, think of the concept here. Yeah, they're giving his son a champion, a show car to race yeah. at yeah. Rockingham. Now, the initial reaction cannot be good because, as I mentioned earlier, show cars are pretty close to being actual race cars, but they're not actual race cars. Right. They have to have a lot of work done to them. From what Steve Mill said, if Bob is mad, the whole family's mad. <laughs> 
So I guess that's got Martha Labonte mad. That's got Bobby mad. That's got whoever mad. So they go to Rockingham and engine builder T.A. Toombs, he quits on the spot at Rockingham. Everybody is mad over this show car. And Terry takes it, sits on the pole with a track record speed, and he wins the race going away. That is something right out of Hollywood. That's all there is to it. (laughs) And I really like the lead paragraph in your story on this race. You wrote that day, having to do little more than shift into fourth gear and steer, Terry Labonte coolly won today's Goodrich 500 NASCAR Winston Cup race at North Carolina Motor Speedway, having to do little more than shift into fourth gear and steer. That's pretty elegant prose, wouldn't you say? (laughs) (laughs) That was pretty good. That was pretty good. You did that on the fly, I'm sure. But nobody should ever say that a win is easy, but Terry and Steve and the rest of the Hagen Racing team sure made it look that way. Terry led 306 of 492 laps, including 256 of the final 270 laps, and he led the last 57 circuits. Yeah, having to do little, then shift into fourth gear (laughs) next year. (laughs) Harry Gant was coming after Terry pretty hard at the end, but... Terry was able to beat Harry Gant to the finish line by about a second. That yeah. would have been about four car lengths. So, Correct. yeah, Harry Gant was coming after him, but Terry had been strong all day. And he said in your lead, I haven't had a car work as well as mine did today in a long time. It worked super all day long. We made a few chassis adjustments early in the race, but in all, it was probably the best Grand National car I have ever had for an entire race. And there was plenty of evidence for that. I'm going to probably have to go back and check with Chase Whitaker on this, but the win was the (laughs) first for Oldsmobile since Buddy Baker's 1980 victory at Talladega. And it was also the first for Terry Labonte since Del Emmon was let go late the season before. And this is something that I didn't remember. Steve was probably considered the crew chief, but he was evidently considered to be part of a three-person directorate (laughs) at the head of that team that also included Bob Labonte, Terry's dad, and Pete Wright. So it was evidently a team effort there. I'd never heard of that situation before. Didn't know it existed back then. Hey, well, you wrote this race lead. I got it straight from your race lead. You remember every word you've ever written, right? Yeah, but yeah, uh uh-huh. I sure do. Yes, sir. (laughs) But I don't remember that at all. (laughs) Terry Labonte said in this race lead, we never have one person call all the shots. We get a lot of input from different places. We all work together. I might say, let's try something and we'll do it. Or Steve or Pete might have an idea. We work together to get the car set up the way we want at a racetrack. And Steve, the best I can tell, there was no mention of the car that Terry drove that day being a show car. Well, I'm sure I didn't mention it in my story because I sure didn't know it. I mean, and that makes this achievement even that much more remarkable. Steve, as always, this issue included a couple of pages of notes from Rockingham. It included a sidebar on Richard Petty and Morgan Shepard, who finished third and fourth respectively. But as I mentioned in the intro, the major news in this issue was the fallout 
from the late race fracas <laughs> between Dale Earnhardt and Darrell Waltrip the week before in Richmond. <laughs> Gene Granger's commentary on page four got things started. <laughs> he said, Gene, what? Gene got something started. Oh, <laughs> not Gene. Can you imagine? <laughs> Gene wrote in his commentary, what NASCAR has done to driver Dale Earnhardt, car owner Richard Childress, and sponsor Wrangler is one of the greatest injustices of all time. Childress's Winston-Salem, North Carolina team is getting much bad publicity it doesn't deserve. Earnhardt may be overly aggressive at times, but he didn't try to wreck Darrell Waltrip any more than I did. Come on, Gene. Say what you really mean. (laughs) Oh, now, I don't know about that. Gene must have been watching a different race than I saw. Uh, well, as usual, Gene comes right out and says what he wants to say and makes a direct point out of it. You can't deny he does that. <laughs> no. You <laughs> may not like it. He doesn't hold anything back. But he didn't try to wreck Darrell Waltrip any more than I did. Oh. <laughs> okay. Your column in this issue mentioned Phaeton Gwynn. Yeah. who oversaw the Wrangler sponsorship, and he told about getting a call from a guy who got up the morning after the race and promptly threw six Wrangler shirts and eight or nine pair of Wrangler jeans in the sky <laughs> on his way to work. Now, that was a pretty expensive protest. Absolutely. Boy, does it ever illustrate exactly how that guy felt. <laughs> But Phaeton went on to say that Wrangler had had presidents of corporations call us and say they don't know why we are still sponsoring a guy like Dale, but we are 100% behind him. He said it was an accident, and we believe him. That's all there is to it. And he made his point, didn't he? (laughs) Steve, the day after the race, Dale was fined $5,000, required to post a $10,000 bond, and he was placed on probation for the rest of the year. And I think it's important to remember that this took place in just the second race of the season. So he was going to be on probation for the rest of the year. That's right. NASCAR was being very heavy handed here. Well, wait, this just (laughs) in breaking news (laughs) in a sidebar that took up half of the first page of the race. Now when something like that happened, Oh yeah. It was major news for it to take up half of the first page of the race. That's that right. Was that was that big. Was big big so stories got a lot of space. There was a story about how Dell's fine had been reduced to $3,000 and the probation dropped after his appeal. Now, how about that? Yes. Dell's appeal was heard at the Douglas International Airport in Charlotte. I was he- there. I was there trying to get into that. (laughs) (laughs) I once tried to give a driver a tape recorder going into one of those meetings. How did that go? Well, it didn't turn out so well. (laughs) I didn't get a tape of the meeting, but hey, whatever. (laughs) But Dale's appeal was heard at the Douglas Airport in Charlotte. And during the meeting, Dale presented a character reference that he said was signed by more than 20 people in racing including Bud Moore, Ricky Rudd, (laughs) Bobby and Davey Allison. That's another good one. Red Farmer, Ron Bouchard, Randy Dorton, Harry Hyde, James Hilton, and Johnny Hayes, who is the motorsports director at U.S. Tobacco. Well, it seems like Dale really meant business with that, don't you think? 
Yeah, he was bringing out the big guns. That's right. And although his fine was reduced, Dale still wasn't satisfied. He said in this story, they have reduced the fine, but I am thinking about appealing again. I am not guilty of intentionally wrecking Daryl Waltrip. I tried to get them to tell me if I was guilty or innocent when I was informed of the decision because I thought we had the meeting to prove that I was innocent of the action they say I took. I still say I'm innocent, and I think that I may appeal to a higher level. Well, you know what that means. Well, it sounded like he was going to give old Bunky Knutson a call. (laughs) NASCAR's national commissioner, Seaman E. Bunky Newton. Yeah, but evidently that appeal was denied, and he eventually did have to pay the $3,000. And, Steve, there was yet another story in this issue, (laughs) and this one included further reaction from Dale, but it also included Daryl Waltrip's thoughts. Well, I'll tell you what, the scene was nothing if not complete during those days. (laughs) Well, you had to be because it was the only place to get the news. I didn't know about this, but according to Dale, Daryl had actually rammed into his car after the accident. I did not know that either. Because you see that car after the race and the throwback race that they showed on Fox last week, he's sitting in that car and that car is used up. That car is very used up, so I didn't know that it was even possible for it to move, but evidently, from what Dale said, Dale ran into him. That's all news to me. Yeah, and Dale said in this story, Dale got into me after the race. I was going through traffic, and he got beside me. He looked right at me and then turned right, which slammed Dale into the wall in turn one. He said, I've got sore ribs and a sore leg. I thought that was pretty intentional, but after the race, NASCAR finds me saying that I made the intentional move. And there were also reports that Dale had flipped DW off (laughs) (laughs) at some point, which he denied. He said, I have never made an obscene gesture at anybody on the racetrack. (laughs) I shook my fist at Daryl after he got me sideways one time, but I never made (laughs) an obscene gesture. Here's an observation about all this. This was early in Dale's career, correct? And this is where he was basically making his strides to being a superstar in the sport. But sometime while doing that, he would get into mix-ups like this one. And that polarized the fans at the time. As we've just seen, some, some of them thought he was despicable and some of them thought he was a hero. He was a real racer. But they were not polarized to the point where Dale was an icon like he later became. This is during his building team, and Dale was not universally popular. As for Daryl Waltrip, he said, I am surprised it has gone on this long. It has <laughs> been building up since last year. Not between Dale and I, though. It's sort of like the first time you hear a two-year-old say a nasty word. Everyone says, oh, how cute. <laughs> and all of a sudden, the two-year-old has a big vocabulary, <laughs> and you don't know how to stop it. <laughs> You know, I sort of like that. (laughs) That's what I compare it to. All of this has been some sort of joke until now. It has gotten out of hand, and I think NASCAR fined Dell at Richmond, not only for that, but for all of the things he did before. And then the writer of this story, which was you, (laughs) asked about hitting Dell after the wreck. Daryl Walter basically pinned that on Dell, too. 
Mm-hmm. He said, well, I would never pass a car that was dragging all four tires, especially if I was the guy who made them flat. <laughs> I was trying to cross the finish line. I wasn't trying to hit him. You can talk with the guys in my crew. I didn't have any steering. But although I didn't try to hit him, I didn't try to stop. <laughs> I went right into the guardrail and just kept going until I stopped. If I were Dale, I don't believe I would have gotten between the guardrail and the car I hit. <laughs> and Steve, then there were the letters to the editor. And you know, that was many, many, many people's favorite parts of the entire paper. <laughs> And there were so many about this incident that it took up the letters to the editor section on page four. And then it jumped to the back of the paper where it was basically a full page. And not only that, there was a note that said that they would run some more. <laughs> in the next issue. Well, so, some of these letters you need to read because oh, yeah. they oh, illustrate yeah. they illustrate absolutely what I've been saying about Dale at that time, about how he split the fans' thinking. Sylvia J. Wharton from Charleston, South Carolina, said, it wouldn't hurt my feelings if they kicked Earnhardt <laughs> out of NASCAR altogether. <laughs> E.L. Howell of Milton, Florida, said, isn't it a shame that not one NASCAR official has the fortitude to outlaw a driver that conducts himself in the criminal manner oh, that Dale Earnhardt does on the racetrack. <laughs> Ooh, I like that one too. John E. Dawson of Lawrenceburg, Indiana, wrote in and said, if Dell's fan club president is reading this, then he or she can take my name off the list because I resign. <laughs> Forceful opinions from people who don't like Dale. But on <laughs> the other hand, on the other hand, there were those who supported Dale and Searboro of Kannapolis, North Carolina. Kannapolis, North Carolina. Okay. So, yeah, <laughs> there's think? a little hometown favoritism <laughs> there. Okay. And said what Daryl Waltrip did after the race was worse than what happened all day, but no one seemed to notice that. If they find Dale, why not Daryl? Or is Junior Johnson pulling the strings at NASCAR? <laughs> Pretty stout stuff there. <laughs> Patrick Bergen of Johnson Creek, Wisconsin said, I went out Monday and bought two pair of Wrangler jeans <laughs> in support of Earnhardt. So that maybe made up a little bit for the other guy who went out and threw out. Well, I was going to say, maybe the guy should have found that first guy. <laughs> took his clothes from him rather than buying any new ones. Oh, well. <laughs> and Steve Don Hunt of Whitman, Massachusetts. He was on both sides of the fence. He was mad at everybody. Don wrote in and said, what's happening? Are these two bimbos trying to reduce stock car racing to the same level <laughs> of big-time wrestling? <laughs> and, Steve, moving on into this issue, we've talked about Daryl Waltrip and Die Guard. We have talked about Buddy Barrett and Die Guard. We've talked about Donnie Allison and Die Guard. We've talked about Bobby <laughs> Allison and Die Guard. We've talked about Ricky Rudd and Die Guard. And this week, it's Robert Yates <laughs> <laughs> and Digard. Robert left the team a couple of days before the Daytona 500 that year, and Gene Granger set out trying to find him. It took Gene a couple of weeks to track him down, and when he did, he discovered that Robert had taken a job with a company in Greenville, South Carolina, that was involved in synthetic fuel research and development. So Robert was out of racing all together. All together, and I did not know that. 
Robert said about leaving Diegard, mentally, I couldn't stay with that program any longer. My contract gave me three weeks vacation. I never took a day. I worked every Saturday, most Sundays, and lots of nights. They couldn't get any more out of me. I would just as soon be dead as to try to go another day. That's a strong, strong statement about what was going on at Diegard. And it reflects the working conditions at Diegard. Not very well, by the way. And, of course, Robert's attorneys had advised him not to talk directly to Bill or Jim Gardner. Things had been going bad since the November before, and that's when Robert started trying to look around, trying to figure out a way to leave. He said, I knew it would only be a matter of time before I left. I also told the rest of the guys in the engine shop to find other jobs. I had hired Larry Wallace to work on some special projects. It soon became obvious we weren't going to have the money to do the projects. Larry came to me one day and reminded me that he signed a four-year contract to do these projects. I asked him to stay and help us get to Daytona. We worked almost around the clock just to build engines to sell. Larry helped us get to Daytona. Then he left the company. Right there was enough to make me want to quit. Larry was the key to my business. We built 21 engines. How about that? Unbelievable. We had five or six customers down there. 21 engines, Steve. Mm. You know that was night and day work to get that done. Yeah. Steve, the straw that broke the camel's back, according to Robert, took place the Thursday before the Daytona 500. Robert was in the hauler, and Bill Gardner and Sam Belnavis, who was helping Willie T. Ribs at the time, told him that he needed to build some Ford engines for Willie T to go test in Atlanta in a couple of weeks. And Steve, according to Robert, they didn't have a single Ford part or piece to build a Ford engine. But Robert said that he told Gardner and Bell Navis that he would build them an engine if they came up with the money. And that's a mighty big if. Yeah. Well, he called one of the engine builders and told him to start working on a Ford engine. And this guy refused and Robert fired him. Larry Wallace was already gone and Robert was absolutely beat to death. And Robert said in this story, when NASCAR officials told us Friday afternoon to put down our tools and go home for the day, I told Robert Pemberton, who was the team's crew chief at the time, and the other guys on the team that I was going home to Charlotte and I wasn't coming back. And I don't blame Yeah. Robert drove home. He cleaned out his locker at Diegard, called the fuel company, the synthetic fuel company, and told them that he was available. And by the time the gardeners got back from Daytona on Tuesday, every single person in the engine shop had quit except for one. That's about rock bottom right there. And there's even a short sidebar that said that Jim Gardner, Bill's brother, had also left the team, and he was replaced by Ralph Moody of the Holman and Moody team. Yeah, as the team's general manager. So, Steve, the bottom line is this. Things were not looking good for one of the most successful teams in NASCAR in the late 1970s and early 80s. No, and that was clearly obvious by this time. Bill Gardner was not happy about what had taken place. He was quoted in Gene Granger's story, why didn't Yates come in and tell me he was unhappy? How bad could something be for a guy to leave under those circumstances? I don't think that was playing fair with me or the rest of the team. He let us all down. Well, I disagree. I think that Bill Gardner 
and his finances being what they were at the time and the working conditions that he provided at the time were very much at fault. Gardner continued and he said, I'm here to stay in Winston Cup Racing. We will be filling those vacant positions as soon as possible and business will be as usual. All I can add is that we're still in business and we plan to be for many years to come. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, I will say this. Diegard wound up running 13 races in 1986, including three starts, two DNQs, and two withdrawals with Willie T. Ribs. And Steve, I'm going to go out on the limb here, way out on the limb. And I'm just going to say this. There is a documentary on Willie T. Ribs that's available on Netflix. It's called Uppity. And it paints Robert in a very, 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 very bad light. And Willie T basically talks about the engine trouble that Dogard was having, kind of hints that it was Robert's doing, and wonders why Robert didn't come to the track to help solve the problem. Willie T Ribs said in this documentary that Watkins Glen was a race that he and the Gardeners thought that he could have won because of his road racing background. But the team wound up withdrawing from that event after blowing four engines which Willie T called the final straw and he never attempted to run NASCAR again. However, this issue date is in March and the Watkins Glen race was held in August. So Robert wasn't even working for the team when Watkins Glen rolled around. So there's that. Right. By that time he had opened his own shop, Robert Yates engine development. Steve, I don't know that he provided any engines for Diegard and Willie T. Ribs. I can't imagine that he would have, given their prior working relationship. But the fact is, Robert Yates was not working for Diegard Racing. Right. Diegard Racing was already on very, very precarious footing when this happened. So I don't know. Uh, Take that for what it's worth. Well, let me tell you this. Uh, Willie T. Ribs' problems with Diegard go far beyond just engines. And I'll leave it at that. After three races with Jeff Swindell behind the wheel in 1987, the team folded and there was no more Diegard. And Robert Yates had actually signed a 10-year contract with Diegard in November 1984. And so you consider everything that took place for Robert during those 10 years. That would have been 1984 through the end of the 1994 season. So what would have happened to Davey Allison's career had it not been for Robert Yates? And thankfully, it turned out the way it did, both for Davey and Robert. Finally, Steve, finally. (laughs) (laughs) Steve, this issue was 46 pages. I think we've gone through every one of them. I don't know how long now. (laughs) But finally, there's a piece on David Pearson's plans for the future. David was helping his son Larry's Bush Series program, and Larry did go on to win the Bush Series championship in 1986 and in 1987. David said, I don't feel I have any goals I feel I have to achieve. I think that through the years, I've done everything I needed to do except maybe win some more. You never get tired of winning because that is what racing is all about. It's been so long since I've won a race. I've almost forgotten what it feels like. I wouldn't be in this at all if I didn't feel I could win again. David wound up running just a couple of races in 1986, one at Charlotte and the other at Michigan, where he finished 10th, a lap down to race winner Bill Elliott. And he did consider a comeback in 1989, but 
because of his back issues, did not actually race in 1989. So these two races in 1986 were the final Winston Cup races of his career. I think that one of the reasons that David's career ended like it did was not necessarily because he lacked a desire. And I do agree he didn't have many goals to achieve. But I think his back problems were far worse than the public ever knew. In fact, I called him up one day, not long after a race. It was another race that he could not finish. Not just because of the car or how bad it was or anything of that nature, but how hard the pain struck him. And I said, I told him, hey, Dave, this is Steve. And before I could say another word, he said, I just can't finish the race anymore. So that told me exactly how strong the situation was. Hi, I'm Lake Speed. You're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve Brian Green left a review on our Facebook page. He said, I absolutely love this show. iTunes wouldn't let me leave a second comment to update that I have long since caught up and listened to every episode. I look forward to the release every week. The reverence you show for the history of our sport is unmatched. Thank you for all you do. And thank you, sir. Yeah. Thank you, Brian, for those very kind words. Again, we have had so many reviews and so many comments, and they all basically boil down to this. This show is about jogging people's memories and reliving some of the good times that this sport has had to offer and a few of the bad times that this sport has had to offer. But we are all about paying respect to those who have come before us and who have been a part of making this sport what it is today and and again, we recorded this episode remotely and had a couple of issues that we <laughs> needed to overcome, but we are going to continue for as long as this virus lockdown takes place. And then, of course, we're going to get back together face to face and we're going to keep going. Absolutely. We are going to keep going. We're not going to let a virus stop us. And I don't want the fans to have a virus stop them either. Stay safe. And take care of yourself. How was that, Steve? Are you yeah. are you comfortable with everything? Yeah. So far, so good. How'd you like it? Yeah, I think it's good. Okay. I do wish, I, I will say this, I wish that there was a video option. Well, it, 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 helps, you re- it helps you react. You yeah, know, it does. You look at other expressions and everything. Like that. Yeah, it does. But we'll get used to this. Yeah. Yeah.